Hi, before we begin, I just want to first start out by asking everyone that listens to this podcast to go to the show notes of liveandlimbo.com or go to podchaser.com in search of ContraZoom, where it would mean an awful lot to me if you give a very quick uh, rating and reviewing of this podcast or any episodes in general if you like preferably five stars. If not, I understand it. Of course, iTunes ratings always help. Uh, The more ratings and reviews we have, the more visibility this show gets, which helps it grow. Uh, So once again, if you go to the show notes of liveandlimbo.com of this episode, there will be a link to podcast. Uh, pod chaser uh, which is aiming to be the imdb podcast so it's going to be a really big huge thing for the podcasting community and it would certainly mean a lot if you are able to take the 30 seconds and just leave a quick rating and review thank you so much this is contra zoom a live in limbo production This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and today is a very interesting new series that we're going to try out. All the time, you know, because I love movies, we're always wanting to have movie conversations, film conversations with me, whether it's about recent releases, you know, did you like the new Avengers movie, Uh, what is your contenders for best picture things like that and you know i always love discussing movies because i just can't get enough of it and then of course inevitably when you get two film geeks in a room together the conversation will eventually turn to your favorite movies of all time or you know your most influential movies or things like that and i just find that a lot of the time people that want to be involved in these conversations they like watching movies they enjoy them they don't just want to see what's the number one movie at the box office things like that uh but there is a bit of an intimidation factor as far as getting into film or film history and things like that and i will totally admit you know i have been studying film for a long long time and i still feel like i've barely scratched the surface uh, i've read a bunch of books a big one that i think was really influential to me was uh, the story of film by mark cousins which literally goes back and tells you the history of how cinema was created and moving pictures but it tells it from all over the world so how every country basically started their own film industry and so that's really interesting not just necessarily the most biggest ones and i've watched a ton of documentaries and i love listening to other podcasts about film history i really can't get enough of it i'm super passionate about it so much so that i started a movie podcast which if you're listening to this you probably feel the same way so like i said sometimes some people feel a little intimidated and You know, I find a lot of times when other movie nerds are making recommendations for great films to kind of get you into film in general, they go a little too deep. You know, if if we're talking about a uh, person that is most likely North American, probably only speaks English, uh, 
hasn't seen a lot of black and white films or maybe any silent films at all. And then you start recommending things like Ingmar Bergman uh, or um, uh, Ozu or Brisson or things like that. Uh, it tends to be met with some resistance. Um, even as far as going with, with English language movies, there's, there's definitely, I find this sense that if it's not this super influential movie that, you know, only, you know, the biggest film nerds have seen, then, then what are you really doing? Uh, but in reality, I think there's a nice balance of combining, you know, not necessarily populist films, but films that reach a wide demographic that are great at starting to scratch the surface. This was mostly spurred on by the fact that I had a friend who asked for recommendations of how to get into film. And, uh, and so me and a couple other friends were, were sending in what we think are, you know, great influential films, more so about what our favorite ones are. And uh, I was going to make a list. First, it was only going to be five movies. And I'm like, oh, no, it has to be at least a bit more. So it started with 10. And then I, and then I started making a list of, what movies I think should be on a list for a person that wants to get into film that could have a very high success rate of actually getting through these movies, learning a lot and feeling engaged and wanting to go deeper into cinema's history. I ended up with over 30 movies that I think were just the absolute top level films of the best way to get into film as a whole. I managed to narrow it down to 25 and I'm going to break this podcast up into two episodes. So the first is going to be the first half, and the second is going to be the second half. These films are going to go in chronological order, starting from the oldest movie up to the most recent. I picked these movies for a few different reasons. One, they're all in the English language. This is not to say that if you're, start, if you're wanting to learn about film history, English is the only language that matters as far as cinema goes, but... For this list, this is for a native English speaker that probably doesn't speak any other languages. This is probably the best way to move forward. Also, the plots are all relatively straightforward, uh, easy to understand. The themes you can get just on a first watch. And specifically trying to pick movies that you can easily point to one or two things of why they are uh, so influential. Or I guess a better way to phrase it is one or two things that you can really look at and say, this is what makes this movie great. This is something that if you're paying attention, you should also be able to see uh, the greatness of it and maybe how it might have affected other movies that you now watch today. So without further ado, I'm going to take a short break. And when we come back we are going to dive right into the movies that I think are a great intro. So I'm going to call this series Intro to Film 101, Part 1. Why is it when I see you I perk up like a child I walk right by you I wake up from this dream that is my life Wake up 
So, starting way back in 1934, the very first movie that I believe is a great starting off point for someone wanting to get into film. Not necessarily film history as a whole, but just a good uh, way to get into film where it is closer to the medium that we know today. Because before the 1930s, the mid-1930s especially, uh, cinema was dominated heavily by silent films, a lot more abstract films, shorter films, experimental, things like that. By the time the 30s rolled around, you really are into the Hollywood system that has now been established, and things are a lot more conventional. So the first film on the list is It Happened One Night, directed by Frank Capra. This is a fantastic one. I'll read a... I'll read the IMDb plot description for each of these movies, which is, for it happened one night, a spoiled heiress running away from her family is helped by a man who is actually a reporter in need of a story. The reason why this movie is on here is because this is quite possibly the greatest screwball comedy of all time. It's uh, it's a genre that's known for its romantic storylines, the rapid-fire dialogue, and plots that are pretty much predicated upon misunderstandings that cause drama and comedy. A lot of time, uh, romantic comedies in speci- uh, especially sort of are based around this idea of uh, someone not knowing something about someone else and a secret that needs to be revealed or a misunderstanding of facts, which moves the plot forward. Sometimes it's done very lazily. Sometimes, like in It Happened One Night, it is done excellently. This idea that you have this reporter that is hiding who he really is, who's trying to get a scoop about this heiress, fuels the sort of story of that he's just trying to think of her as a spoiled brat and then eventually falls in love with her and she's falling in love with him and it's this great story. The reason why I'm saying it's the greatest screwball comedy of all time is something that's also... Uh, based upon the fact that it's one of the originators of the genre itself. Uh, This movie is actually so influential with its comedy that um, the main character, played by uh, Clark Gable, uh, actually inspired Bugs Bunny the character, which you can't get any more influential than that. Um, The way he talks, the way he munches on a carrot, it's all there. When you watch it, you see Bugs Bunny, which is great. This film was also the very first one to win the Big Five at the Oscars, which included Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Clark Gable, Best Actress for Claudette Colbert, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, This is a record that has only been matched by One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs. So the plot for this movie isn't anything that's revolutionary, but the sheer wit of everyone involved still makes this an all-time great. And you'd be hard-pressed not to be laughing the whole way through. It's a really great movie. Second movie on the list is Casablanca, which came out in 1942 and was directed by Michael Cortese. The plot description is a cynical nightclub owner protects an old flame and her husband from Nazis in Morocco. You know, this is, this is the type of movie where a lot of people have seen 
a lot of people point to Citizen Kane as, you know, the greatest film of all time. And and I definitely think it's in the conversation up there. But I think Casablanca also deserves to be in that conversation. Uh, this is probably the greatest love story ever told on cinema. And it's just a perfect film from start to finish. Every minor detail, every, every little piece of information you learn in this movie has a purpose. So many times in poor scripts, you get things where... Information is introduced, characters are, are meeting up, things like that. And a scene later, none of that matters. In Casablanca, every single piece of the puzzle matters. You can connect point A to point B to point C all the way through to point Z. So it's a fantastic, very tightly written story. Uh, even characters, you know, pay attention to the minor characters that populate the bar. The information that they offer and how it all sort of comes full circle and no character does not get the proper art. It's, it's just utterly fantastic to see such a well-crafted story, especially when you kind of read up on the history and they had some script issues. They were unsure how to end it, things like that. The film also serves as a bit of an interesting history lesson as we sort of learn about resistance fighters and the role that Morocco played in World War II as far as it being a port city. Um, and it was a gateway of people that were trying to escape Germany, escape Poland, different places like that would end up coming through Morocco because that was the easiest way to get to other countries, uh, whether it be in South America or to England, to United States, things like that. It was definitely a very crucial moment uh, in, the, in the war's history. And when the Nazis eventually overtook the this Morocco, uh, it definitely changed the, the way it looked. And so... so this movie sort of takes place in the waning days of Morocco and Casablanca in particular being a uh, important port city. Next film is all about Eve from 1950 directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And the plot description is an ingenue insinuates herself into the company of an established but aging stage actress in her circle of theater friends. This is a movie that has some iconic performance. This Betty Davis, probably one of the greatest actresses of all time, gives one of the greatest performances of all time. So much of this movie is sort of wrapped up together uh, in between what Betty Davis's personality was like and what the industry in general was like for female actresses that were aging. Uh, but really, it's just it's just fantastic because. Davis puts all of her insecurities out on display about this idea of being usurped by a younger, prettier actress and what that means for her career. Uh, the dialogue in this movie is razor sharp, with every barb cutting deep. And really, uh, other than Betty Davis, this film is just a sort of a powerhouse for female actors in general because this movie got four acting nominations um, for the women. You know, you had Betty Davis, uh, Celeste Holmes, Ann Baxter, and Thelma Ritter. All four of them got Oscar nominations, which is crazy. Um, you also had some really interesting performances from George Sanders, who uh, who played 
uh, a friend of Betty Davis's, Margot, uh, and a few other more bit parts. You also have a very small uh, cameo from Marilyn Monroe, which is interesting, who also sort of plays uh, an up-and-coming female actress, uh, funnily enough. Next movie is An American in Paris from 1951, directed by Vincente Minnelli. Plot description is, three friends struggle to find work in Paris. Things become more complicated when two of them fall in love with the same women. I'm not a huge musical person, but this one, when I saw it, stood in my mind so much. Gene Kelly is phenomenal in this. Uh, Dancing with his acting... Everything that he does, I, I'm just blown away with what he did. You know, uh, a great quote that uh, I had heard before about the differences between Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly's biggest rival, and Kelly himself, uh, came from the husband of an actress that had worked with both. He said, if she came home covered with bruises on her, it was the very physically demanding Gene Kelly. If not, it was the smooth and agile Fred Astaire which really describes how much energy Kelly put into all of his performances with this one not being the exception to the rule. It absolutely showcases why he was so iconic. Um, I really also like the performance from Leslie Caron, who plays the, the love interest in this movie. Um, and, and really this movie sort of has a, a few really interesting key little dance moments it's got a funny little script it's a good love story but this movie really shines through in the last act he thinks gene kelly's character thinks that he has lost her uh the love of his life and he has this sort of dream sequence and everything suddenly becomes these pastel cutouts recreating france and it is just gorgeous in a way that is hard to even describe. You know, they did a similar thing in Singing in the Rain, which is a movie I'm not as familiar with, very much so because of the way that the ending of that movie goes, this sort of dream sequence, I feel like sort of detracts from the rest of the movie. But in An American in Paris, it all works together to be spectacular and then has a, a nice little ending to it as well. Um, yeah, it's been emulated countless times since since it came out next up is on the waterfront directed by elia kazan the plot description is an ex-prize fighter turned longshoreman struggles to stand up to corrupt union bosses this is a marlon brando uh movie that isn't his most well-known as far as his performances go. You know, most people would think either Streetcar Named Desire or The Godfather uh, or maybe or maybe something else. But for my money, I think this might be his best performance uh, or at least the most complete movie that he's in. And, and it has some truly iconic parts. You know, the famous, I could have been a contender. That's from this movie. Uh, all around, this movie has super strong uh, actors in it, including Carl Malden, Lee J. Cobb, Rod Steiger, and Eva Marie Saint. Everything about this movie just sort of hums along nicely. Uh, Elliot Kazan may have a sort of a complicated place in the history books after he named names in the House of Un-American Activities Committee and the Red Scare that swept up Hollywood. 
and he, he made this movie as sort of a way to apologize for his actions, it's still kind of complicated exactly what political message he wanted to get out of this movie because I don't think it relates one-to-one exactly to his situation and the way he should be rightly considered in history books of sort of turning on his compatriots. Um, But, you know, with a fierce tale about standing up for yourself and not letting bullies win, this film really does pack a punch. And and Brando really is the main reason for that. It It is stunning in a way that we know Marlon Brando is capable of. If you've never seen a Marlon Brando film, this is an excellent introduction to his work. Next up, is Rear Window from 1954, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Plot description is a wheelchair-bound photographer spies on his neighbors from his apartment window and becomes convinced one of them has committed murder. So this is an interesting one. You know, you want to introduce people to Hitchcock because he's so influential, but where do you start? You know, the I think the first response most people would give would be Psycho. And while I do think... Uh, Psycho is a great one. I don't know if that's the best introduction. I think, personally, Vertigo is probably his best movie. But I think that movie is just a little bit too dense for someone wanting to get into Hitchcock and wouldn't be a great pick. The Birds or North by Northwest are also both good ones. But I find they could be a little cheesy at times. I think Rear Window is the perfect balance of understanding what a Hitchcockian film is like. It's an easily digestible plot. It still has that suspense that he's known for, but it doesn't have that sort of cheese factor that some of his other movies have in as far as how they've aged today. Um, and, and I think also, you know, Jimmy Stewart's performance uh, really adds to it because this movie, so much of this movie relies on Jimmy Stewart and not being a physical performance. Jimmy Stewart actually is a great physical performer, but he has a broken leg in this movie, and so he is stuck in a wheelchair for most of the time. So he can't be as animated as he normally is. Really, the other reason why I think this movie is a great one is just the set that was built. They actually built an apartment complex facing Jimmy Stewart's window, and they're all functioning apartments where... From a distance, you see the scenes being populated, but also Hitchcock was able to bring his crew inside of them and film inside as well and make and show just exactly what was going on from every angle. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just this sort of sense of voyeurism, which is exactly what watching movies is. There, it's just, You are watching other people's lives and their drama unfold. And this sort of is the voyeurism onto voyeurism, which is really interesting to, to see, and it's been oft imitated ever since, but it will never be as good as Hitchcock did in 1954. Next up, we have 12 Angry Men from 1957, directed by Sidney LeMay. Plot description is a jury member holds out attempts to prevent a miscarriage of justice by forcing his colleagues to reconsider the evidence. 
On the last episode, I had Sammy come and join me, and we actually did a bit of a revisit of 12 Angry Men, which I, if you listen to that one, was spurred on by this same conversation as far as recommending great films as introductions. I consider 12 Angry Men to be one of uh, my personal favorite films of all time, so I usually recommend that anytime someone is asking for, for suggestions for great movies to watch, especially if they're okay with watching older films. I'll go into it a little bit, but the reason why I think this movie is so great is the performances. You've got 12 men that really need to be working together in order for this thing to work. If you have one or two that stand out as being too over the top or a little too understated, none of it works. But you have 12 actors who all bring their A-game, and for an ensemble, it basically is about six main characters and about six supporting characters. And it's just fascinating to see how it all sort of works together. The other great thing about this is the limitations that LeMay put on his crew as far as making this movie. It takes place in one room, in a jury deliberation room. You can't have fancy sets. You can't do a lot of interesting camera angles uh, or camera movements. Everything is very restrained. And when you put that many restrictions on yourself, you better deliver. It's the same thing with, uh, I'm a big fan of watching cooking competition shows. If you cook a simple meal, it better be perfect because there's nowhere for the mistakes to hide. Much like 12 Angry Men, there is nowhere for mistakes to hide, and there are no mistakes to hide. And the great thing about this is this is a first-time film bought from Sidney LeMay. You know, he ended up making some fantastic movies like Network, Serpico, and Dog Day Afternoon. But the fact that this was a first-time making a film and it turned out to be 12 Angry Men will always blow me away. Next, we have The Apartment from 1960, directed by Billy Wilder. Plot description is, a man tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for trysts, but complications and romance of his own ensue. So politically speaking, this movie hasn't really aged all that great as far as the way office sexual politics go, uh, this sort of treatment of women and things like that. But all that said... Uh, much like 12 Angry Men, where it's definitely a product of its day, it also is a product of the future in the sense that it is very open-minded and uh, accepting of women in a way that we didn't really see back then, and so much so that the main character understands what's happening to this woman as far as uh, Shirley MacLaine's character uh, being mistreated and abused, he is very proactive in trying to assist her. Sure, this has a bit of men-saving-women fantasy involved in it, um, but you know, both of these characters are very broken people. They're magical together, both Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon. They express so much emotion, even when there's no words to be said. Um, it's also a really funny movie at times, but towards the end when the comedy peters out, it's very hard hitting. And if you don't cry the first time that you see it, I don't know, uh, what kind of a stone heart you have. 
1961 is West Side Story, directed by Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise. The description is, two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love, but tensions between their respective friends build towards tragedy. If that plot sounds familiar, it's because this movie is Romeo Juliet. Literally, that's all this story is, is Romeo and Juliet. Two star-crossed lovers from families that could never stand to be together. It's not the first time that Shakespeare has been interpreted differently. In this case, you have Americans and Puerto Ricans fighting each other in New York. It's definitely a race-related movie. But, you know, the, the theme still resonates today. The songs are indelible. You'll be, you'll be humming I Feel Pretty for, for weeks afterwards, and the choreography is stunning. What most stands about this film, though, is its cinematography. The directors recreated New York on sound stages, allowing them to have stylized lighting that was both classic and completely unheard of. There's this school dance sequence in particular that slows everything down, has some really interesting fluorescent lights come on, and it's just a treat to watch, and it's still beautiful to this day. Up next is In the Heat of the Night from 1967, directed by Norman Jewison. The description is, an African-American police detective is asked to investigate a murder in a racially hostile southern town. This sounds very timely given today how things are still going in the south of the U.S. And interestingly enough, when this movie was shot, there were definitely issues. And Sidney Poitier uh, refused to ever go back to, uh, I believe it is, it was Alabama where the film was shot after uh, everything had uh, wrapped up because he had such a bad experience with the locals. Um. You know, much like 12 Angry Men, the the sticky heat plays an important role in ratcheting up the tensions. The racism in this is not easy to stomach, but the strength and the dignity of Poitier's performance more than makes up for the abuse that he deals with. And the climax of this movie is still as impactful today as it was 50 years ago. In fact, we don't see impactful climaxes today the way this film does. It's scary it's breathtaking and it won't surprise you in the sense of the way the events actually turn out this is really an important movie to understand race relations as far as how they used to be and so much that things probably haven't changed all that much unfortunately up next is the sting from 1973 directed by george roy hill the description is two grifters team up to pull up the pull off the ultimate con. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Sometimes you wonder how a movie can be so much fun and so great at the same time. You know, a con job performed by two screen legends, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. This makes Ocean's Eleven look tame, even with their incredible cast that that movie had. The story plays out so beautifully, you can't wait for everything to be revealed to you. You watch these two con men plan a con, and you watch them go step by step, from recruiting other people, to setting up the operation, to dangerously trying to lure in their their target, to actually the execution, and then you don't understand how things go. You have to wait a bit. And then eventually, 
everything gets uh, revealed to you. Robert Shaw plays the the villain, the the target in this movie, and he does a fantastic job uh, bringing a real nice balance to the performances of of Redford uh, and Newman. Uh, a lot of people would suggest probably uh, their other movie that they that they made together, their their most famous one, um, which. Uh, hang on, I, I'm blanking out. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but I actually think The Sting is a far superior film to that. Uh, and, and Crime never looks so good, both for the actors, but the set as well. You, you really have to appreciate what they did with the set. Next up is Blazing Saddles from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks. The plot description is, in order to ruin a western town, a corrupt politician appoints a black sheriff who promptly becomes his most formidable adversary. You know, Mel Brooks has kind of made his entire career off of offending people from his other movies like Young Frankenstein or Spaceballs, things like that. Everything about him was to piss you off and to push buttons. But at the end of the day, it always had a point. He definitely brought his uh, Jewish background to the forefront as far as the way he felt that that influenced his life, uh, both in terms of being treated differently, but also still being able to be a part of the mainstream white society. Unfortunately, uh, he also realized that black people did not, were not afforded that same luxury that he was. So he was able to make a Western, which very historically has been a very white genre of films, uh, especially as far as white people oppressing other people, whether it be Native Americans uh, or, or Spanish people, Mexican people, whoever it might be. And using a black lead that's the smartest and bravest person in the film was certainly to piss off people, and it did. The total skewering of the genre by Brooks is a masterpiece up to and including the infamous bean scene. With so many jokes flying around, you'll want to watch this film a few times just to catch everything. The last film that we're going to talk about today is Jaws from 1975. The plot description is a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer team up to hunt down a great white shark wrecking havoc in a beach resort. This movie is so iconic that everyone knows what it's about. You've seen the poster. You've heard the music. But this movie could have gone wrong in so many ways. A shark attacks a town. Three men in a boat go out and try to catch it. It sounds simple, but it isn't. Spielberg's early work showed why he was one of the best directors of all time. The three men all provide powerful performances but the real trick is making the film almost entirely focused on dread, with only a few real scare scenes. You know, you've got uh, the first shark attack at the beginning of the movie. Uh, you've got the diving sequence when they spot a head. Uh, and, uh, and a few other potential moments. But really, this whole movie is based on dread and fear, and not the actual scares themselves. This movie also features uh, something that's called a dolly zoom uh, when uh, Roy Scheider's character Brody is on the beach, which otherwise known as a contra zoom. Uh, it was that camera movement was originally taken from Vertigo and has been replicated many times since. 
obviously Jaws is probably the second most famous instance of the dolly zoom or contra zoom, which is where when a camera is on a dolly track is pulled backwards, the camera lens zooms inwards, creating this weird tunnel effect. Or it could be done in the reverse where the dolly goes forward and the zoom goes out. Uh, but there's also plenty of iconic shots in this movie. You know, there's the the long single take of the ferry ride. There's the diving scene that I mentioned earlier. All of this really showcases what innovative camera work uh, Spielberg and his team were capable of, especially for such a, an early movie in his filmography. Uh, this movie really does have a little bit of everything and set the template for what the modern uh, summer blockbusters like between this movie and the first Star Wars movie, these two completely invented summer movie season as we know it. Why is it when I see you, everything I say I wish I could take back? My life would be okay if. It could just be an endless stopping chat Wake up in a shower of day-old beer and cigarette ashes We'll compare stories of happy accidents yet to happen. So, there we have it. That was the first 13 movies in my Intro to Film 101. Stay tuned for the next episode where we will have the remaining films and we can go over it. Make sure you go to liveandlimbo.com where you can find the show notes and I'll have a list of all the movies. Um, And I definitely hope that people check it out and maybe give some feedback about how you think this list went. You know, do you think it's helpful if you're trying to get into film, if these are ones that you would either recommend to other people or if you yourself watch them and feel like you're learning from them? As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I would also really appreciate it if you go to Podchaser. There'll be a link in the show notes where you can rate and review the podcast. This is going to be the IMDb of podcasts, and so it's great to have everything there with user reviews and ratings and things like that. You can both rate the show itself and individual episodes. I'll be including links for both once they're available. Go back and make sure they're in the show notes that they're there. So... Follow me on Twitter, at ContraZoomPod, or you can follow me personally, at DGAPA. Let me know, what movies do you recommend for people as far as if they're wanting to get into cinema? What's your sort of go-to? If someone says, what are the most influential movies to you? What might they be? They don't necessarily have to be 101-type movies, but what are good intro ones? So, hit me up on Twitter, and let me know what you think. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and also I just want to say that music from this episode is from Callahan in the show notes. You'll find more information on where you can buy his music and learn more about him. Uh, we did a premiere for one of his music videos a few weeks ago called milk and honey. That's also beautiful that you should check out. It'll be linked in the show notes as well. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for listening. Have a great one.